What makes someone start a business? What makes a good business leader? How do you bring the energy of an entrepreneur to a large business? What's the role of product in the sales process? These are some of the questions we ask Mark Tochtenhagen, entrepreneur, product leader, and senior vice president at Quovent, a legal services and technology company in Nashville, Tennessee, on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. We explore the role of virtue in work and family to remind you that fortune is often found in the path of reason. I'm Tom Nazer. Mark Tochtenhagen, father of two and avid fisherman, is a no-nonsense product leader who can say in 10 words what many can't say in a thousand. Mark created, co-founded, grew, and sold a medical case management software company before joining Pure Safety to lead the product team. Mark was with Pure Safety when they were acquired by UL, where he continued to grow his portfolio of enterprise software for healthcare. Today, Mark is the Senior Vice President of Product for Quillen, where he's building legal billing compliance software that improves the relationship between large enterprises and their law firms. Mark's commitment to simple, honest, direct communication and his desire to know his customers make him an ideal guest for the Fortune's Path podcast. All right. Hello, Mark. Good morning. Good afternoon, whatever it is. Good afternoon. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there is no time in COVID. Everything has stopped and, and we're now just uh, in, in constant stasis. It's crazy. How are you doing? It I'm is crazy. Su- I'm surviving. I actually got yeah. tested this morning. Did Not because really I feel go? sick or anything, just because I... Uh, mm-hmm felt like I had to for some reason. I don't know, but it was pretty easy and straightforward. How long did you have to wait? I got there at 8. It started at 8.30. There were maybe 20 cars in front of me, and I was out of there by 9. Well, you did a lot better than my sons. Um, So uh, one of my sons has been tested twice. The first time he had an experience like you did. Second time he went about a week or two ago, and um, he went to two different locations. He waited an hour at each and they each basically closed when he got to the head of the line. Um, and so then he, uh, he went back and did it again, but uh, he hasn't gotten his results back. Um, and then my other son is a contact tracer. So I've been uh, overhearing him today on the phone, talking to people who may or who tested positive for COVID and the health department's trying to follow up on him. I hope he doesn't call me. I hope he never has to call you too. (laughs) So um, one of the things I wanted to um, talk to you about is uh, you have founded at least one business. How many businesses have you founded? Just one. Just one? Yeah. So what what did you learn from that experience? Oh, geez, it was the most humbling experience in my life. Uh, um, Humbling in a really good way. Uh, I think it it really taught me I had no idea what it was going to take going into it mm-hmm. but I can tell you that I watched more 4th of July parades from the front porch of our office building than I did with my children or anything like that because I was working yeah. so mm-hmm. there's a lot of sacrifice but um, fortunately there was an exit so there was a good outcome but I would say that uh, it really makes you search your soul, you know, about halfway into it. I mean, we were doing this for 13 years. About halfway into it, you 
talk to your friends that are working at Microsoft or they got really good jobs and they got 401ks and you're sitting there having a beer and the reality hits you that uh, I have no 401k. All I have is a bunch of stock in this company that's only worth as much as someone's going to pay me for it. And what that is, I have no idea. So it, uh, it requires a lot of soul searching. But like I said, uh, we created some value and enough value to have an exit, which was really good. It was bittersweet. But um, um, yeah, I finally had my 401k. Just did it the long <laughs> way. <laughs> you just made one big lump investment all at once. Right. <laughs> so why did you do it? Oh, geez. I ask myself that all the time. I think I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Uh, my mother, um, geez, she was a second grade school teacher and she always wanted to learn how to fly. Mm-hmm. And my folks split when I was probably eight years old and she decided that she was going to learn to fly after her head straight. Yeah. Started taking flying lessons, started dating her instructor, who they just had one little dinky Cessna 150, and he was an airplane mechanic. Mm-hmm. And in the evenings, he would teach people mm-hmm. how to fly because he had a passion for flying too. And uh, she grew that. She, they ended up getting married, and they grew that business to the point where maybe 15 or 20 years later, they sold the business. They had maybe 14 planes, and they were teaching people how to fly. They flew cargo. They did some charters. Uh, they did all kind of stuff. So she had a, she's got wow. some entrepreneurial spirit. Her mother was, had her own business. Her mother's father had his own business. That's all I can attribute it to, Tom. So, you know, um, Mm -hmm. DNA, I guess, is the best answer. Did uh, did you end up spending your 4th of July then at the hangar? You know, uh, I figured out early on that that was not my passion. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) (laughs) And it kind of disappointed her, but we talked about it. But, um, yeah. I like my feet on the ground. I, I don't like even necessarily flying yeah. big airplanes, even though I do it quite often. Not now with COVID, but I uh, did do travel pretty extensively. Yeah. But I just, I just, I'd rather be on a boat than in an airplane, I guess. I'd rather be, be on a boat than in an airplane, too. Um, my father started a business. So he, he and a partner um, began a business when, um, uh, they kind of went into it because they weren't getting treated all that fairly in the places that they were working. And so they were sort of tired of working for knuckleheads. And um, when they started out, they didn't actually have a product other than themselves. So they had, they called on institutional investors. Their territory was everybody east of the Mississippi. This is way back, you know, the, when the Dow wasn't even at a thousand. And um, there, they would, people would pay them to come and talk to them about what everybody else was doing. Um, and so they could come in and say, well, you know, these, these managers are doing this and those managers are doing that. And so they were, while they um, generated revenue, while they built a product. And those, um, you know, early days of any business when typically you have a, unless you're taking outside money 
and if you're shoot you're bootstrapping it, you typically have a service that you're then trying to convert into a product. Is that what you ended up doing with your business? You know, we kind of knew what direction we wanted to go early on. We wrote a business plan. We cashed in all of our retirements from previous employment. Um, I was fresh out of grad school, had a couple other partners, and uh, one was an engineer, and the other one was good with sales and marketing, and we had this Kind of idea to, um, you know, Windows was starting to dominate. Yeah, Windows 3.1 was just released. There was a lot of antiquated software out there. We wanted to be in healthcare, but we didn't want to be on the clinical side of it. We wanted to be kind of in the employer side of things. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these larger employers that have the wherewithal to self-fund a lot of their programs. Uh, they have on-site clinics and things like that, so we want to develop software that could be sold into those clinics. So, um, you know, the business plan and the ideas and what was initially put down on the business plan was somewhat similar to what we ended up doing. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you gotta shift and you gotta rotate and you gotta continuously strive to hit the mark and. Uh, Fortunately, we found a good niche and solid product, and it was kind of weird because, you know, here's three guys plumbing selling to companies like Kellogg and, mm-hmm. you know, U.S. Steel and companies yeah. that they probably didn't know that we totally started out of a garage. Right. That's pretty. So how do you, how do you find that fit? I mean, that's like, that's sort of everybody looks for is, oh, product market fit. And, um, but you, you, you don't find it, in my opinion, through your business plan. So how did you guys find that? You got to get out and start talking to people and find out where the needs are. And, uh, you can never stop doing that. Um, even today in my role, some of my best ideas come just from, um, talking to internal stakeholders, mm-hmm. talking to prospects, talking mm-hmm. to existing clients, talking to competitors. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of my best discussions would, are at conferences. Hey, you know, I don't do it in a disguised way. I just say, I'm product manager at Corvent, mm-hmm. you guys are one of our competitors. How are things going? Mm-hmm. We had tremendously great discussions. I think it's great to go to people who are a lot bigger than you. And they, um, they're like, oh, we haven't heard of you guys. And then they'll tell you everything because they're like, well, you're just some pipsqueak. And <laughs> sometimes you can find in those conversations sort of a chink in their armor about like, oh, well, they're positioning themselves this way. So when we go head to head against them, we should do this. Um, and they'll, they'll, you know, like you said, you're, being, you're not hiding anything from anybody. But if you play humble in those situations, I think people will sometimes expose themselves. And the bottom line is this. I mean, everybody's got scarce capital. you got to hit the mark and with the ideas that you do bring to market. Mm-hmm. And even though you may think this is the right direction for your product, you may never have the wherewithal to take it to market. You may be able to develop it, but you may not have the resources to put in the marketing and positioning and sales effort that it, that's required for it to succeed. It's, it's holistic. It's not just 
you know, come up with some requirements, throw it over the fence to engineering, they'll build a product, and then they will come. That never happens. <laughs> it's, wouldn't it be great if it did? <laughs> it would be awesome. Yeah. yeah so you, I'd be a lot more, I'd be a lot better than I am right now. Yeah. Well, you you're, you told me you you've been doing a lot of work with sales and with marketing and strategy. Um, what's the right way for product to make those relationships work? Because sometimes people feel like you're playing in their sandbox. You know, product management, at least in all the product functions that I've kind of led, is usually a smaller department. Mm -hmm. You have to have collaboration in other areas because we get all our inputs from everybody else. And if you can't step out of your box and ask a lot of questions, um, you know, I typically run across two people. Mm -hmm. um, People that know what product management does, they know that they have to work with you to get um, to make things better, mm -hmm. to make their area better, whether they be a client or whether they be a you know, operations person that wants a better internal process. And then you run into those people that uh, are really hard to engage with, and you just gotta you gotta be firmer with them and say, look, you know, you, you want these three or four things done. How do you think that they're going to be done right? You're the expert. I'm coming to you to get the requirements to build that. You are a vital part of this process. I just can't dream it up. Mm -hmm. And that gets their attention. And really it's dialogue. And it's, it's, you know, if you want me to build it, chances are that we're going to go through three or four iterations before it's perfected, and it's going to require the same amount of time or more mm -hmm. than if you would just start from scratch and let's get it, knock it out and get it done and get it done right the first time. So you you're, um, you try to bring those stakeholders <clears throat> into the development process directly? Yeah, <clears throat> I don't even get to the point of development, don't even engage engineers. You know, we don't engage engineers until we um, fully understand all the requirements. Uh, what we like to do a lot is uh, kind of mock-up prototypes for bigger projects. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the tools that are out there these days are awesome because no engineer, an engineer would rather play around with a prototype all day than read Oh, yeah. 50 pages of documentation. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then you can do a proof of concept with your prototype with your stakeholders, mm -hmm. and they can actually sign off on it. And uh, it's it's really an awesome way to uh, to to get the requirements and really hit the mark on your product. So it sounds like you you kind of apply agile to the different phases. So does let's say design is one of your phases. You're going to be agile in design, but not trying to be simultaneously agile in design and development at the same time. You, it's all incremental. Yeah, you know, you mm -hmm. take a concept and you kind of get a whiteboard and you may start whiteboarding it mm -hmm. and throw up some wireframes and things like that, and then you start creating your prototype with a web product and you add some color to it, mm -hmm. and it just it just grows and. Uh, that's my favorite way of doing things because mm -hmm. you get people can really see mm -hmm. what it what you're creating rather than it's it's like seeing the requirements in three dimensions yeah. right 
and uh, it's been extremely uh, positive way for us to kind of articulate what needs to be built. Have you ever had a time when um, you had a strong opinion about either a design or a feature and um, the, the team you were with didn't share that opinion? How, how do you handle that kind of a situation? Yeah, unfortunately, that happens a lot in this business. <laughs> I think you have to get at the root of why someone holds such a strong opinion mm -hmm. and understand where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. I mean, are they holding that opinion because they're kind of leading the project and they feel like it's their baby? Or are they holding that opinion because they've seen, you know the three or four or five other competitive products out there and they really understand um, what works. I mean, if, if it's their baby, then it's easier to look out to other products and say, well, you want to do it this way. Look at how these other products handle the same situation in fewer steps and this is more optimized. Mm -hmm. You just kind of, you kind of just keep going back to the drawing board until you get a solution where everybody's bought in and signs up. So sometimes it's hard to know how other products do it, your competitive products. How do you typically get that intelligence to understand how they're handling the same thing you're doing? Um, you know, it's tough, yeah. you know. One of the best ways to do that that I've found is through um, expert networks, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe they're not going to log into the product and bring it up, but you can ask them a lot of questions. And by expert network um, is where you actually pay people to advise you. Mm -hmm. um, very common, I mean, they're used in venture capital all the time. You can imagine due diligence. I mean, if someone's going to spend millions of dollars to acquire billions of dollars to acquire a company, they they better not just listen to the people that are selling the company. Right. <laughs> um, we have high opinions of what we're selling. That's right. It's the greatest thing in the world, <laughs> that's right? That's right. You couldn't possibly pay me enough. So we use expert networks. Um, it's It can get pricey, but the information that you get out of it is it's gold because... Um, you know, they're honest, they feel obligated since they're, you're, they're paying, I mean, we're paying for their time, mm -hmm. and oftentimes um, we have, we're the ones having to cut them off so we can get to the rest of the questions we want to ask, they'll, they'll go on and on and on, it's, it's hugely well worth the time and money, to, the feedback that you're going to get out of. So you did that recently for a project there at Quobin, right? Yep. We utilize an expert network more on a uh, marketing side. Mm -hmm. um, sales was kind of hitting walls. And the uh, head of sales and the CEO kept saying, you know, it seems like the product's a nice-to-have, not a must-have. We need to get over that barrier. Right. So, you know... Uh, our executive team has tremendous trust in each other, so we're not afraid to knock on other doors. And so they came over to product management and said, Mark, can you maybe look at this from a different angle? Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I started talking to clients and wasn't really getting, you know, the clients you have bought it probably because of the way it was positioned. Right. <laughs> so maybe you're only successful with 5% of the market mm -hmm. that were the 5% that were looking for that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, just repositioning your product in a different way can open completely new doors. And that's what we are seeking. Um, so we utilize an expert network. We talked to maybe 10 people that we would consider in our buyer profile. Mm -hmm. And it totally changed the way we, uh, we sell the product. And uh, very, very refreshing. And actually led to some roadmap changes because obviously, however you position a product, you want that to be reflected in the product as well. Yeah, there's, there's, um, it's easy to lose sync between your marketing messaging, your sales message, your implementation message, and the actual experience of the product. Because uh, you're setting expectations at each point along that journey, and those have to be realized in the end user. Um, and so as you're, it's, we change positioning all the time. When we're not getting the outcome that we want, we'll tweak our positioning, we'll tweak our um, you know, calls to action and our outreach. And then sometimes that stuff ends up being looking very different than what the actual product looks like at the end. Uh, I think it can be hard to, to keep alignment all the way through that. I mean, um, how, do you how do you try to do that? You know, it's very critical that your marketing message, your products align with your marketing message. I mean, if you're, you're touting that it's, it's easy to onboard, easy to use, you can be productive in hours. Mm -hmm. You better not have month-long implementation plans mm -hmm. and configuration and things like that. So if you want to be simple and easy to adopt, then you better build simple and easy into the onboarding process, whether it's the client services team that are doing the onboarding or whether it's new features in the app that can streamline that and make it simple. I mean, you People buy your product probably for the two or three things that appeal to them, and usually that's how you position your product, so it better be reflected in the product as well. Do you, um, do you see yourself maybe going back and starting another gig? I mean, starting another company? <laughs> well, Tom, I told my wife that uh, if again. I were to ever do this all over again, I'd be a farmer because disasters are 100 years apart. <laughs> They used to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I being in technology is. I mean, I love making order from chaos. Yeah, but it was it was so challenging. Just when you think you get your product to the point of perfection, that Microsoft throws another operating system out there, and you have to rewrite a lot of the stuff that you did. It's just the nature of the beast. And that comes with the territory. Would I ever start something again? And before I took this engagement, I looked at uh, um, potentially buying a couple companies yeah. that were nowhere in technology at all, but something that I thought that I could be passionate about yeah. and uh, maybe create some sort of lifestyle business that I could maybe pass on to my kids. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I was finally convinced my wife it was the way to do it, and she finally agreed, and I went to make the offer the next day, and they sold it. 
Oh, jeez. And so, so that was offer number one. Offer number two was as soon as they sent me the uh, uh, paperwork, you know, to do the due diligence and things like that, the broker told me they already had an offer on the business and uh, that it wasn't, hasn't closed yet. And, uh, you know, that fell through too. But yeah, it totally would. I mean, look at it this way. Mm-hmm. The most painful thing about starting a business, in my eyes, mm-hmm. is getting to break even. Oh, yeah. Okay? That is worth, to me, a ton of money. Yeah. So if I could go out there and find a business that's already out there mm-hmm. that I can be passionate about, yeah. and I feel that they got a great product or service, you know, I'll find money, whether it's mine or other people's money, right. to buy that company and take it to where, take it to the next level. And if I ever did that again, you know, I would probably buy an existing company. So I wouldn't have to go through that pain of putting food on the table. I had a um, uh, leader I worked for once who said, once you get the business to break even, you have the rest of your life to figure it out. Um, so we were in a in a startup that was, um, I guess, about 120, 150 days old, and uh, we weren't at break even. Um, and so I was thinking about I, I need to hire this guy, somebody I've worked with before. I love him; he'd be really helpful. And um, Robert said, "Well, once we get the business to break even, we have the rest of our lives to figure it out. So, do you want to spend this money now and potentially push your break even out, you know, six months, a year?" Or do you want to maybe hold off on this? And, and so it was a good argument. So I said, okay, we don't need them that much. Um, and uh, we, we moved on from there. Um, and I think that it's, it's tough to know when is the right time to make that, in, to make that investment. And um, if you're working off of other people's money, we've seen many, many disasters of um, when companies' valuations are based on growth but not profitability and that growth is funded off of other people's money Um, and you end up with strange businesses that nobody can figure out whether it's food delivery or ride sharing uh, or office space you know there's lots of these out there that um, sort of defy business rules And you got to be careful about who you choose as your partners, whether they're just financial partners or um, people that you're going to work with on a day-to-day basis that have a piece of the pie. Do you talk to your, your kids about business? Like when you go home at the dinner table, you said you grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Do you talk to them about what you do and running a business? Yeah. I mean, all the time, you know. Um, you know, there's certain companies that I'm passionate about and like to do business with, and you know, like Costco. Mm-hmm. You know, never had a bad experience. When my son and I go there. He goes, Dad, why do we always go here? You got <laughs> There's always a hundred people in the line. Mm-hmm. I go because you can go here and look how great it is. <laughs> you know. If you ask somebody a question, you get an answer, and they yeah. walk you right to it, yeah. you know? Yeah. And the experience is just so great. Yeah. I mean, and that's 
for reason number one, and the reason number two is that we have stock in Costco. <laughs> <laughs> so French is rightly understood. Yeah, yeah so, you know, they get it. I think that uh, my son has actually taken an entrepreneurial class as a junior in high school, and mm-hmm. he's got a... Uh, we've been talking a lot about what kind of ideas he, he may be able to harvest into a little project for that, so we're excited about it. That's very cool. Is he considering skipping college? You know... Who knows the life of a sixteen-year-old boy? Mm-hmm. Um, Subject to change, you know. Yeah, um, you know, I, I was one of those guys that um, went to college, really didn't learn anything until I went back to college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know, if he wants to take a year or two off to find himself and test, put his toes in the water and see what he can come up with. I'm, I'm more than uh, willing to let him do that. I'm not going to force him to do, do college. I think that you have when you go to college, the second time around for me mm-hmm. was so much easier than the first time. And I did so much better. Mm-hmm. Okay, And I just wish that I'd have had that perspective um, when I went to school. What did you do in between your first and second round of college? Yeah, so shockingly, my uh, undergraduate degree was in geology and geophysics, Mm -hmm. okay, because I thought that I wanted to uh, be the guy that that looked at all this computer seismic data, and and I wanted to be the guy that says, drill here, Mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. And it was was cool kind of studying that, and it was a lot of fun. Got out of college, got hired by mobile, uh, moved down to Houston, worked in a 30-floor building with 100 people on every floor. Mm -hmm. And one day I just kind of looked around and said, okay, I'm on the 27th floor. There's 100 people out here doing the same thing as I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Can I see myself doing this in 30 years? Yeah. And basically the answer was hell no. Mm -hmm. So I... uh, uh, made uh, plans to exit before I had the one and a half kids and mm-hmm. two and a half cars and all that stuff. Yeah. And, um, shockingly, at that age, I was kind of proud of myself for making that decision because the money was outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to walk away. So maybe that's part of that entrepreneurial DNA. Mm-hmm. You know, I went back to school, got my MBA with the desire that I wanted to come out of it and um, uh, had my own business. And technology was kind of booming. And um, um, yeah, that's kind of what created the opportunity. I feel like sometimes we're drawn into entrepreneurship because we really don't have any choice. It's, it's a little bit totally. like, like people say, um, well, if you're going to be an artist, it better be the center of your life. And I think if you're going to start a business, it's kind of the same, which is a shame for a lot of reasons, like you talked about, about missing Fourth of July's and just staying awake at night. But the sort of, I would say, tension I felt working for other people versus the kind of tension I feel you know, with my own business are very different. Um, 
so working for others, there was like, what do people think about me? And, um, you know, sort of the politics of an office and whether or not you're fulfilling the, the needs of your, your boss. Um, whereas when you're working for yourself, it's more like, why isn't anybody buying? <laughs> Which is kind of a, it's a different problem. Yeah, I think that the people that are successful in larger corporations mm -hmm. uh, have the mentality of a small business entrepreneur. And that kind of gets them to ignore all the noise in the politics mm -hmm. and maybe take some risks, mm -hmm. uh, educated risks. But um, it's easy to get grooved in a big organization yeah. and to be paying attention to the wrong things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess that's why I've always, I mean, I've worked in bigger organizations. I've worked in my own small shop mm -hmm. and Quovens, maybe 70 people now. Mm -hmm. I think it's perfect size mm -hmm. for me. And uh, I think it, you know, Tom, at the end of the day is, do you trust the people around you? Yeah. And when you can trust the people around you, it doesn't matter whether it's your own business or Fortune 100. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that's, um, I think it's, it's hard to trust people at work because money is involved. And money uh, will corrupt relationships. Um, and so, yeah. So how do you, um, do you have a way that you figure out if you can trust someone? Is it just a feeling that you have or observation or sort of what do you look for to know that? I think the best leaders that I've ever worked for um, basically said, Mark, um, you know, I'm going to ask you to make decisions. And when there's risk involved, I'm going to require that you tell me what those risks are. I don't really care if you fail. Failure is a part of business. Um, as long as you don't make the same mistake twice, and as long as we're all on the same page, I mean, that's a huge amount of trust given mm -hmm. to me in my role. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, he, my boss doesn't want to do product management, but he want to, wants to make sure that the products are steered in the right direction, and that's going to require some change, and that's going to require some risk. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like I said, the trust is there. He gives me that trust. I tell him when I fail, um, and he said, well, that was one of the risks that you brought up, and I was aware of that, mm -hmm. so that's okay. So you got to be open. you got to be, um, you can't go into this job with any kind of ego, um, and as long as you can really trust, I mean, I mean most sales and marketing managers mm -hmm. would be weary of product management oh, yeah. product management stepping into their territory yep but here they welcome it yeah hey you got a great idea you can find some other way to crack this nut go for it i mean everybody's egoless and is uh it's extremely refreshing i think that um sales people can be weary about um product people getting into their business because product people tend to talk about the product and when you're in front of a prospect a lot of the times talking about a product confuses the prospect you're so it's it's easy for because prospects aren't thinking about the product they're thinking about their problem 
They're thinking about what it is that, they're, that the outcome that they're trying to achieve. They hope your product helps them do that, but most of the time they don't really look at it carefully enough to know if it does or not. You're establishing trust with them through a variety of, of through a process, but the, the product is only one part of that, establishing that trust relationship. And so when product people come into sales opportunities and they start talking about features and about functions and benefits, sales, sometimes um, prospects just get confused. It's all about value. I yes. mean, as much as, mm -hmm. much as product people would love to bring up the mm -hmm. application and give mm -hmm. them a, you know, mm -hmm. five-hour demo. Yeah. Yep. It's not what sells the product. Definitely what not. sells the product is, is mm -hmm. how you position it and what value it's going to deliver. Mm -hmm. And the best salespeople understand the prospect's pain mm -hmm. and can align their presentation toward that. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, I love talking to prospects. Yeah. And sometimes I'm brought in for the you know, prospect meeting and, you know, Okay, Mark, we're going to let you talk at the last five minutes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't you love and that? And I'm sitting there the whole time just chomping at the bit just to <laughs> dive into this. That's right. You know, I, I know exactly where the value is. Yeah. Sometimes I just can't help myself. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of interjected my opinions in the sales yeah. call. But it always worked out. And most sales... Um, folks appreciate you know having having a little little assist there now and then. Oh, completely. Um, I, I interviewed one of my very favorite sales leaders recently, and he had a phrase I loved. He said, um, "You have to have a burning intellectual passion to understand your customer." And I think whether it's sales, whether it's product, that that desire to understand the customer in a way where you can articulate problems better than they can articulate those problems themselves. And um, you can begin to formulate a solution for them because I believe customers typically are terrible at formulating solutions. They're great at telling you their problems, but once they start telling you what the solution is, uh, it, gets, it gets rough. That's why contractual yeah. obligations in software can be such a, uh, a nightmare is that you, you, um, you, know, you may be just sort of taping somebody's arm behind their head. Uh, because it doesn't hurt so much when their arms back there. And you want to know who the best salesmen out there, Tom, are? Yeah. The ones that say, "I'm sorry, uh, our product can't solve that problem," mm -hmm. and go try X, Y, Z. Yes. Because the worst nightmare for a product manager mm -hmm. is to get a deal without mm -hmm. fully understanding what the prospect or the client's trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And then deal comes in, and holy crap! Now we got to develop a bunch of other stuff just to satisfy their needs because sales is promised to them. Yes, that's that's the worst mistake anybody can ever be ever made, and you know um, that's why you need good communication. I mean, sales leadership needs to know when sales encounters a prospect that says, "Well, if you had this, we'll buy it." Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And rather than saying, okay, we'll do that, they have to be able to come to the product team and find out whether that's on the roadmap. And if it isn't, they got to be able to say no. Or if it is, product management's got to be open-minded enough to say, yeah, we can, we, can, we can accommodate that, but 
it'll be in this time frame. Mm-hmm. But on if the first time you start being dishonest with your prospects or clients, it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, you can't remember all the lies you told, so you don't know quite how to get out of it. Um, yep. And um, it is, I think that when customers start start asking you about the roadmap, when they start trying to get involved in that part of it, I'm, I'm torn about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, because to your point about the value, I really don't want them thinking deeply about my product. I want them to use it and to love it and tell other people about it but not necessarily to have a whole bunch of opinions about how it could be better. Like I love my car. I have no opinions at all about how that car could be better other than that I had a garage for it. Um, you know, but so um, I don't know. What, what's your opinion about getting customer involvement in the development of the roadmap? You know, I rarely ever um, share the roadmap with, anybody outside of the company walls um you know we can talk about initiatives but more often than not i'll i'll talk to the prospect and and try to understand what they're looking for um you know it's it's a huge balance uh being a product manager um you know the things that drives my inputs are basically three things, which I feel that I need to have expertise in those areas, and that's understanding what clients and prospects want. That's only one of three. Mm-hmm. You know, you better understand the industry. You better understand the competitors in that industry. What initiatives professional organizations are driving, and if there's any compliance initiatives that people have to adapt to. Um, and then you better understand new technology that's coming down the road. To me, good product managers have three prongs, and they have to balance all three of those things to create the roadmap. And when you fail miserably, I mean, when you fail by not having a good balance of those three, I mean, how often have you listened to a squeaky client that's actually caused you to deviate from your roadmap? You know, and you end up creating something that's only going to work for them mm-hmm. and delayed all the other initiatives. I mean, you got to have the will to either tell that client that you're not going to do it mm-hmm. or you got to be able to fire that client. And I've done that. And, you know, in terms of industry, you know, look at all the mistakes that were made in healthcare when HIPAA came out. Mm-hmm. You had pages and pages and pages of requirements that these EMRs had to conform to. And when the first products hit the market, these poor doctors down on the corner (laughs) took them an hour just to register a patient. Yeah, it was a disaster. So rather than seeing 20 or 30 patients a day, all they could see is 10, you know? Mm -hmm. And so those failed miserably. And you just got to find what the balance is. And my God, if you don't need to have every fancy gadget in your product, mm-hmm. if your product's optimized for desktop, why would you even be considering taking it mobile? Mm-hmm. You know, so you really gotta you gotta product. That's what product managers do, and and all due respect to clients, you know, they're gonna know what works right and what doesn't work right, and they should leave it to the product management team to make sure that the 
the product evolves in a way that's going to work for them, not to, not only today, but in the future. I think your, your point earlier about um, being honest with customers. So how do you, you can be respectfully honest in a way where, um, you know, you listen to their ideas, but then you put those in a context and you say, well, you know, we take, we take input from lots of things. Uh, when we d- develop the roadmap and develop new features, we're certainly interested in all of your use cases. Uh, and we'll take those into account when we're developing, um, when we're building out the roadmap. But rather than say, well, I want to I see this on Q2 of 2021. I want to make sure that these things are going to be released in your software. I mean, that's why um, Steve Jobs said he, was, he never wanted to be selling the CIOs because he didn't want to have to deal with 500 assholes um, <laughs> and having them run his life. And, um, you know, and I think that you're, when you're building a business, you are trying to find scale. You're trying to, you're trying to get on a set of features that are predictable and an experience that's repeatable. And to do that, it does require discipline around what you're delivering. Um, and that discipline has to also carry you through those times when people aren't necessarily all that excited about what you're doing. And it may be because you're not talking to the right people. So to your point earlier about Coven had hit on a value proposition, which was fabulous for 5% of the market. They loved it. And they kept repeating that value proposition to the rest of the market. But it wasn't until they went outside of their customers and went back to the market and asked them that they could figure out the product's fine. Everything you do is great. It's just you're not talking about it the right way. You know, I've been doing product management since before it was even defined as an occupation. Mm -hmm. And I think that the thing I've learned the most is that um, practicing what you preach. Yeah. And you explaining the value of your product in less than, in two or three sentences. Mm is all you should ever have to do. I don't care if it's an app that goes on your phone or it's enterprise software. Yeah. Okay. And that those tenants, those product tenants that you use to market and sell your product better be reflected in your product as well. Because that's what's that's what's motivating a buying decision. And you you cannot have a big letdown after they're implemented and in the product and ready to go. So is that, would you say honesty, well, I'm going to put words in your mouth. What is your favorite virtue for work? Um, I'm about talking about um, doing what you say you're going to do. If you had to pick out uh, a particular virtue that for work, what would it be? Oh, you have to be humble, you know. Rarely do I ever come up with the right answer. It usually comes from... I mean, I may come up with the right questions, mm-hmm. but the answers come from, you know, clients and prospects, industry, mm-hmm. and technology. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert on technology, mm-hmm. but I sit in the CTO's office at least a couple hours every week just picking his brain. Mm-hmm. And what about this? And what about that? And, um, you know, you got to be curious. You gotta always want to make your product better, but you know product managers that are not humble 
I haven't seen too many successful ones. <laughs> they go back into sales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's no way they can assimilate all that information and be the singular expert. There's just no way. Yeah. Um, so, for humility, as a as a father or as a husband, how do you practice humility in the home? Jeez, you know. <laughs> I guess it depends on what day of the week it is, because yeah. every day is different in our house. <laughs> I think that uh, we we preach to our children to be um, obviously be humble, but to be respectful and to care. All right, and I feel the. Um, both my children have fortunately grown up to have an open mind to, to especially now with all this craziness going on, mm -hmm. that they feel compassion for people that may not be like themselves, yeah. rather than ignorance. Okay, and to see that in my children makes me feel like my wife predominantly, but hopefully me too, mm -hmm. have done some right things. Um, yeah, my, my, um, so we have three, we have a 20, 20 year old, 22 year old and now 25 year old and they're all home right now. My daughter's visiting from California. Um, and, uh, humility comes from just being at the dinner table with, them. um, they're now, they're now old enough to, to basically say, you know, you're full of shit and, um, <laughs> they're doing it in ways that are helping me grow. Um, and I'm, I'm really grateful for uh, some of the things they've pointed out recently. So when the, um, the George Floyd demonstrations began happening, my daughter was in Los Angeles and she participated in a demonstration. And she sent the family a Google Doc she had found that described like the five stages of becoming an anti-racist. And I had never heard of the term anti-racism before. And I, I looked at what she'd sent, and I was like, oh, my goodness, here I am on stage one, maybe sort of a little bit the stage two. But it made it very clear about what was the journey I was going to need to go across from being kind of um, to, to becoming an actual involved ally. And um, it's a long journey. Um, and, but my kids are already further ahead on this than I am. Um, and so being able to see them um, be better people than me uh, in a lot of um, really important areas is, uh, is humbling. And, um, you know, but uh, it's also, um, I can't imagine anything more fun. It's... It's interesting to watch my daughter who just graduated from college and um, pretty much the apex of her, you know, lifetime achievements and really be left the last two months of her senior year with none of her friends on campus. Um, Nobody coming to campus to interview for jobs, no graduation, and the only one around town to drink a beer with is her old man. Yeah. <laughs> and 
Um, the way that she handled that um, was incredibly mature. And, uh, you know, of course we had to throw her a virtual party and embarrass the hell out of her with signs <laughs> in the front yard and everything. But, <laughs> you know, what the hell? If you're going to do it, you better do it the right way. Yeah. Right? But, uh, you know, Tom, right? I feel very comfortable that the young adults today, okay, mm-hmm. are a hell of a lot less ignorant than we are. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I and hopefully we'll be able to carry this country. In- Boy, I agree. You know, and um, I feel like uh, my my kids are. Um, sort of almost a depression era generation where they're they're going through um some crises that obviously i didn't reach until middle age um and um they're they're gonna have resilience and um you know so i'm also hopeful that um the uh we aren't going to be beaten by um by this you know the country's been through some very difficult times in the past and um often from that is a period of creativity and energy that comes out on the other side of it. Um, and I'm optimistic that um, that can happen. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me is, is are we going to redefine our ideas of what it means to have a good life, particularly from a consumption standpoint? Um, and I don't think that necessarily be bad if people found happiness um, with less stuff Uh, my garage would be a lot less smaller <laughs> if that were the case. <laughs> yeah, my my both my kids are minimalists, and uh, you know, I think that uh, I think I think that's an awesome quality to have, and I wish I had more of it. That doesn't mean I go out and buy everything. Right. That's. That's not what I do at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my wife's problem and my problem is we don't get rid of anything. <laughs> that's, that's a lot like products. You know, it's like if I have a product yeah. that's, that has a minimum set of features and doesn't add anything to that, that makes me really happy. And then when a product has stuff that I can't get rid of, that just starts to get in the way, like Word, for instance, um, then it, it carries around all that technical debt and all that weight. Um, and so being able to um, know how to retire stuff. So you put something in, and it's like, actually, that wasn't very good. And then you have to have the courage to take that out. Mark, it's been a blast. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with me. I really appreciate it. Tom, it's been my pleasure. I wish you nothing but great success, my friend. Fortune's Path Podcast is a production of Fortune's Path. We hope businesses pursue the path to virtue that leads to better product development, customer acquisition, loyalty, and engagement. You can catch old episodes of the Fortune's Path Podcast or try our product score calculator at fortunespath.com. Special thanks to Mark Tochtenhagen for being our guest. Music and editing of the Fortune's Path Podcast are by Ted Noser. I'm Tom Noser. Thanks for listening. And I hope we meet along Fortune's Path.